From WPVMLP in Asheville, this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Sam Evian. Hour first started, we were still trying to figure out what we were doing, how to produce the show, what we were going to cover, how things were going to flow. Do we keep things local or do we branch out and cover national issues? 
But by our second episode, we were hit with a 10-ton brick with the news that Anthony Bourdain had suddenly died. A hero to all of us at Dirty Spoon, we dedicated our opening segment to John's obituary for him, something you may have noticed that we replay every year on Bourdain's birthday, known affectionately in the food world as Bourdain Day. Well, we didn't do that this year, primarily because there was a documentary coming out about him called Roadrunner, but also because we were waiting for this piece by Californian comedy writer and essayist Kirsten Hernandez. Kirsten dug deep into Bourdain's catalog during the pandemic lockdown, and when restrictions were lifted, she decided to retrace Bourdain's steps through a city. Here's Allie Wainwright reading her piece, Following Bourdain Through Seattle. I believe Anthony Bourdain is the best writer of our generation. That's a bold statement, but it's a statement I stand by wholeheartedly. The fry cook turned restaurateur rose to prominence in 2000 with the release of his book, Kitchen Confidential, a provocative look into what he refers to as the culinary underbelly. Although Bourdain has been frank about the fact he wrote the book for industry professionals to get a laugh by saying the quiet parts out loud, it became an overnight mainstream success. Informing the public on topics like the sexual exploits of the people cooking your meal and why you should stop eating restaurant fish on Mondays, spoiler alert, because it's five days old and disgusting, he did so with his uniquely crass yet thoughtful voice. An executive chef at Brasserie Le Hall, a restaurant most of us could never afford, it came as a surprise when he allowed us to see into his foreign world. With so much of American food culture falling into the categories of ethnocentrism or patronization in the name of accessibility to mainstream audiences, Bourdain was never dogmatic and treated us like the adults we are by allowing us to draw our own conclusions about the things he showed us. He was opinionated, but he gave equal, sometimes even more respect and analysis to street food as he did fine dining and would regularly state he was the only person who didn't give a shit about the status of the person sitting with him at the table. He seemed to also be the only chef of status to treat their kitchens as egalitarian entities. Everyone from busboys and waiters to line cooks should and did get treated with dignity and respect. Unlike most on the upper echelons of chefdom, he put himself on full display. Skipping the cultural norm of pleasantries was a frequent event as he ripped into others for what he perceived was dishonesty manifesting in many forms. He was fine with making enemies just as much as he enjoyed making friends, and had plenty of each. More often than not, he was unafraid of grounding himself in front of his audience, dispelling the notion that he was a mythical celebrity, and more like someone, for better or worse, we could relate to. Medium Raw featured an out-of-place chapter about how he'd given up being cool after the birth of his daughter, and the Massachusetts episode of Parts Unknown featured him speaking frankly about his recovery from heroin addiction in a support group. My reintroduction to Parts Unknown came during my perpetual state of pandemic unemployment. My two-month backpacking jaunt through the European continent was canceled a week before it was supposed to begin, and I was trying to fill the hole I had to not just see the world, but experience it outside of my living room. The secondhand experiences of the culture, food, and atmosphere somewhat satisfied the hunger I had for seeing the world. In many ways, it was more satisfying witnessing the beauty of what life had to offer through someone else's lens, a viewpoint made more sophisticated than my analysis could ever be. 
The experience and sage commentary of his adventures made it feel like he was not only a spokesperson for the communities he visited, but gave the metaphorical microphone to the people themselves. Above all else, audiences connected with the allyship so often missing from the discourse of white American travelers. He was more than just a TV personality to me. He was a role model for how I should move through the world with an inquisitive mindset. To him, we weren't here to dominate, but rather let the lessons we learned from the rest of humanity shape who we were. Aside from witnessing the brilliance Bourdain brought to our television screens, it seemed impossible for me to separate his escapades with his untimely passing just years before. I couldn't shake the psychoanalysis I was prone to, trying to pick apart the perceived misery, looking for signs of his unhappiness. I squirmed every time the man joked about wanting to kill himself, emotional when he mentioned his beloved daughter, and felt secondhand pain in a particular episode in Sicily where he ran away from the production crew after having a crisis of self-confidence. Despite wanting to have fun, revisiting the adventures of someone I so loved and admired shoved me farther into a state of existential darkness with each episode. The news of his death shocked us all, an announcement so profound it expanded beyond the culinary world, spanning professions and generations. Everyone from presidents, celebrities, dignitaries, and even chefs, those to whom he dedicated chapters of volatile criticism, came out to acknowledge the talents he shared with the world. To most, he was more than just another celebrity chef with a reality show. He was someone who showed us his soul, someone interested in sharing things we would have never seen by ourselves a friend who put his integrity before stardom. No one like him came before, and no one has come since, leaving a void in pop culture and in our collective consciousness. I feel many of us lost a sense of purpose and adventure over the course of the past year. Our wings had been clipped, for good, noble, and necessary reasons, but it didn't prevent the creeping feeling of being stuck. I had forgotten, after a year and a half, how to be a global citizen, to enjoy life beyond my home after being told for so long that life beyond my walls was dangerous, life-threatening. I wanted to relearn how to be a part of our quick and curious society again, and I saw no other way but to follow the example of someone I considered to be a master. So I took a train into Seattle and embarked on my effort to recreate the food tour seen in season 10 of Parts Unknown. Putting on a patterned dress, rouge matte lipstick, and my flattened hair in a velvet headband, I left the dilapidated house I called my Airbnb and walked through the streets of the Capitol Hill District in search of Mom Noon. The restaurant specializing in Lebanese cuisine was dimly lit, accentuated with multicolored glass-blown light fixtures, and 50 ceramic flying pigs descending from the ceiling representative of a story originating from Middle Eastern mythology. The waiters were friendly, eager to describe what laid before me on the gold-tinted tin plates. The dining room was still at half capacity, allowing for the rare gift of hearing my own thoughts as I focused on what I was eating. For the first time in what felt like forever, in an effort to reintroduce myself to the cultural idea of fine dining, I closed my eyes as I took a bite, a mixture of various herbs, lime tomb, and the flaky crust that clung to molten cheese rolls topped with garlic molasses. 
For a minute, I let myself be taken away with enjoyment, trying to soak in not only the fact that I was partaking in one of the best meals I've ever had, but that I was outside again and I wasn't afraid. It was an almost inconceivable thought just a few weeks earlier. After a moment of bliss, I realized where I was sitting, less than six feet from where he sat. The thoughts of him sitting for dinner, giggling hysterically with his weed farmer guests after sampling the product, was all I can think about. A sadness loomed over me at every stop. I couldn't help but feel confused and upset and a little angry. As someone who has tried taking their own life, I should have a better idea or a more nuanced view on what it's like to be in that mindset. I couldn't help but think about myself at 17, convincing myself that if I worked harder or was more talented, I could be someone who wouldn't want to die. I told myself that maybe if I got to live my dream life, one of friends, food, and travel, that maybe I'd be happy enough to want to stay. Reliving the moments I had seen in him less than a year before his passing addled my brain because it was so hard to remember that nothing on earth could end those feelings, not even when you have the everyday life of someone's fantasy. I forgot that suicidal thoughts are unavoidable, moving goalposts. At every stop on my tour, I made it a point to ask the restaurant workers what he was like if he was anything like what we saw on television. The consensus was that he was even better than we could have guessed from afar. The waiter at Mom Noon told me Bourdain's favorite dishes and that he personally thanked the kitchen staff. The fry cook at the Pacific Inn, busy salting the french fries, took a quick second to duck around the corner and proclaim giddily, he was so cool, before saving the bubbling spuds from scorch. The best story came from the owner of Taylor's Oyster Bar, who asked Bourdain to sign his copy of Kitchen Confidential. Instead, he got a hand drawing of a kitchen knife, a thinly veiled excuse to humor his producers to score a few extra minutes to talk to the man about his life as a restaurateur. Before leaving, Bourdain approached the restaurant's publicist to ask quietly if he could smell her baby, acknowledging that it was a weird request, but telling her that it was his favorite smell in the world. She, of course, gladly obliged. After all the anecdotes, the light that came to the faces of those recalling their encounter, the luminescence dimmed when nearly all of them said the same words. I don't know why he did what he did. Some excused themselves back to work, some choked up, but the conclusion was the same. The man was loved. The fact that he was gone for reasons none of us understood caused a visceral reaction in those even on the periphery of his life. It wasn't until I arrived at Bourdain's final Seattle stop, the Shanghai Room, that I confronted my initial mindset. Sitting with friends in a booth adjacent to the bar, smacked out of our minds eating French toast at 9.30 p.m. and watching leprechauns on the projector screen behind us, I realized that this was the takeaway from his life's work. I traced his steps through the Emerald City, walking through the same doors, eating the same food, and experiencing the same people, almost forgetting to proceed with the same amount of joy, of curiosity, that made the man we knew so special. Food, as he taught us, was meant to be something that brings us together. Food was something that sparked joy and started a conversation amongst both friends and total strangers. Whether it was Jolly Bee or Noma, 
Bourdain's work taught us that what was on the table was just as important as who was sitting around it. When we consume his work dwelling on the end rather than enjoying the now, we miss that lesson entirely. It isn't possible to entirely eliminate the circumstances of his passing from the conversation. Doing so is a contribution to the age-old cultural idea that suicide is too dark, too taboo a topic to speak aloud. It is possible, comparatively, to center the conversation around his legacy, the things he did while he was here that made him so adored by those who knew him through himself or his works. Anthony Bourdain doesn't require an asterisk by his name, an addendum wondering why his demons drove him to the end. The thing is, we won't ever know the why. Trying to figure out who he really was behind the camera is a disservice to his memory because he always wore his heart on his sleeve. He was the baby smeller, the man who'd fight for the fair treatment of waitstaff, the one who would show up late to his next location because he took the time to draw a knife in a restaurant owner's book just to buy time to talk. Bourdain is the greatest writer of our time because unlike others more focused on hubristic endeavors, he was consistently and unapologetically himself, showing his passions, his fears, his loves to us all. By extension, he taught us that it was okay to show our passions, fears, and loves. That was the vulnerability that made us fall in love with him. The way we honor his memory is by speaking of him in that light, the light of kindness, humor, and humanity, and by choosing to live our own lives in the same manner he did, wandering steadfast into the great unknown. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson over a decade ago, The Marketplace is back open and serving their signature foods farmed by our neighbors. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, the Marketplace Restaurant, strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters, or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Sleep when they took it away from me. 
But I got it back Now I do in the food world, cooking is a love language. It's the way we nurture the people around us. I've never been much of a gift giver, and I'm not the best at quickly conjuring up an affirming word, but if you're hungry, I'll drop everything to cook for you. It's something I learned from my grandmothers, and something that feels ingrained in me. Seattle's Shauna Bistock found herself in a crash course on cooking for others. Having wrestled disordered eating since the age of 14, it was a challenge for her to take to the kitchen when she became a respite caregiver for foster children. I have a teenager arriving at my house to stay the weekend. I have dinner on the stove, Cheerios in the pantry, PB&J in the fridge. None of these things are typical for me. I'm 47 years old. But recently, I became a foster youth respite provider taking care of teens for long weekends so they and their foster families can get some space from each other. The space that opened up for me, too, was much, much larger than I expected. I know nothing about Jay until I open the door to him. He takes up space in my kitchen while trying to disappear. A large, messy teen, uncoordinated and jerky in both movement and communication as if he can't decide whether to punch through the borders between himself and the world or build more walls. I have made spaghetti and meatballs, something I have only read about and never actually made, but seems aggressively normal. Jay is my first respite kid, and I'm clearly out to prove something. I spoon some onto my plate, but can't eat it. I'm not sure whether it's excitement or appetite or fear. I'm all over the place inside my body. He eats half the pot at the first go. He doesn't seem to care about my plate at all. The light washes over me. I have fed a human being. I look at my plate, and I want to laugh. I eat dinner. Afterward, Jay retreats into a virtual world, and I feel expansive like I've broken through the forest on a long hike up to clear sky and mountain views. I wash the dishes and think about my parents. Making this dinner cracked open a floodgate of understanding. Not so much about myself. I've been in conversation with myself about food, hunger, control, power, 
and space for a long, long time. But for what my own mom and dad went through when my eating disorder first took root, I'm very close to my parents. I've been working with kids and teens for decades, and I've done my share of therapy. But feeding foster youth has been a new adventure, putting me in a different relationship with my own body, boundaries, and capacity. My home feels like it's bursting with food now. All these cans and bags of rice and freezer full of fruit and veggie burgers that never used to occupy these cabinets and drawers. It's part of my licensing. It's required that I stockpile food in case of disaster. This, for the woman who lived for years with only a few yogurts in the fridge and protein powder in the pantry. I am fortified. And yet, that yogurt girl wants to flail when it comes to producing a meal. It's like I have a closet full of clothes and can easily dress for the weather and go out clothed. But what would I wear for a date or a job interview? Presentability is not my forte. But for these kids, I want to try. I'm up front with them. I'm more of a snack person, I explain. But let's try for one to two meals together a day. One of the best tools in my recovery from a 35-year-old eating disorder was finally freeing myself from traditional meal expectations. I don't need to tell these kids that I find that momentarily shutting out the world, focusing on nourishing my body, allowing it to be contrary and isolated. Creating this space helps me build a more authentic and positive relationship with my body and re-enter the world with less shame. Another foster kid, B, comes to stay for a few nights. B is trans, refuses to bathe, may or may not have a spectrum disorder, likes to go on walks and collect things like sticks and wrappers. I sense shame and confusion roiling around, control issues like a stash of fireworks ready to blow in all directions by an errant spark. I feel like I have met B in various forms a million times in my career. The foster parent called and texted for a week prior to the visit. She's desperate for respite at her wit's end. I feel like a servant, she says, and they never eat what I make. Every day their tastes shift, and they hate eating with us at the table. I'm doing my best, but they are just driving me nuts. B attacks their noodles with all ten fingers, cramming them into their mouth. They wake up with hunger for eggs, excited to identify their desire, but subsequently terrified of the egg's sliminess. The pancakes are too sweet, but the Cheerios look suspiciously healthy. Everything is debated, considered, analyzed, absorbed. B wants an apple. B rejects the apple. B is a kid whose own sensory experience is so profound it conflicts with their internal hunger. I can see why this could drive a parent crazy. But for me, it's a giddy feeling, a roller coaster ride that I'm actually enjoying. I'm curious and, and share that curiosity with B, and together we start to share the successes of meeting their hunger. How frustrating it is to miss the mark, how an about face doesn't need to be rational but might have a scientific explanation. Who am I to judge craziness around food? And I realize my giddiness is being able to extend to B a compassion and acceptance. I am unwilling to extend to myself. For the entire weekend they are with me, 
they eat at the island, with me standing nearby or sitting at the table. I come to understand that their problems with food center around sensory experiences. Food can be overstimulating, like a loud party. The thought of food is different from its reality. Texture, color, smell, overwhelm. No wonder their taste won't settle. Taste is the least important sense at play. I teach them how to make eggs in the microwave, how you can change the texture and feel of the eggs by cooking time. I let them eat noodles with their fingers, the fingers, noodles, and mouth becoming one big mush of movement. I'm not responsible for teaching table manners. Maybe they will be important later. Right now, it feels more important to hold space for them, to discover nourishment, to project a sense of acceptance and establish connection. Later in the weekend, they ask for a fork for their noodles, and I am filled again with that rush of delight. But this delight high comes with a crash. Having a kid in my kitchen upends all of the protocols I have put in place to protect me from myself, to provide my own structure and limit my choices. I feel naked, like they can see all the stuff that came before in this kitchen. I feel trapped, like I used to feel at family dinners starting around age 13. My parents were granola, literally. My dad made handmade granola in huge batches once a month, and they ate it every single morning with sliced banana. My mom had recipe cards, some signature dishes from the Moosewood cookbook, and a lifetime of internalized gender roles at war with a fierce, formidable feminism. In my teen years, two key events happened. Mom went on a low-fat diet for a breast cancer study, and she started working a lot more. Chicken, broccoli, and noodles became every dinner. My dad was a full partner in sharing the cooking duties, but not a full partner in sharing the creativity required to deviate from the script. He loved to eat, but his tastes were uncomplicated, and after a day of social work and counseling, broken families and failing marriages, he had no capacity for complex decisions around dinner. My mother felt a sense of failure. She has always wanted to nourish others with beauty. I pause now, years later, to consider how my own failure to eat these basic dinners must have contributed to her guilt, confusion, and sorrow. I always was aware of their pain, their worry, their terror for my survival. But I don't think I ever really thought about the joy that came with the gig and the tremendous loss. What a gift it can be to feed a growing human being. That dinner could be a sunbreak in the storms of life, What a grief it can be to have a child reject that gift. That dinners could turn into a series of gray days without light. I have always, always loved my family. Loved our weirdness and power as a small but mighty foursome. So my discomfort in my body went to war with my desire to connect. When I was a teen, I bought 100 Easy Ways to Cook Chicken and took on the challenge of dressing up chicken breast in new and exciting ways. I found this combination of control, limitation, creative expression, and responsibility incredibly soothing, even as I found actually sitting down to eat with my family increasingly nerve-wracking. Cooking fostered pride in me. Eating fostered shame. Revisiting this history through a parental lens now eases up that trapped feeling. 
I am able to extend empathy to my parents, as I would a peer, a friend, and in doing so, feel the empathy coming back at me. I marvel at how transformative the relationships between me and these foster youth are, and how little the youth themselves might ever realize the gift they are giving me. Z shows up with little warning, and my anxiety spikes in preparation for her arrival. I narrow my focus on my cupboards, try to plan a meal. I feel unprepared. She's a great kid, I keep hearing. A typical teen, not a picky eater. Later, I laugh at this. Z turns out to be the pickiest eater I've ever had, but hiding it beautifully under a veneer of typical teen, which of course isn't really ever a thing. All teens want to be typical. None of them are. Which is about the only thing you can say is typical about a maturing human being. Z is a young woman who has been navigating the system and society with keen intelligence. Who cultivates being just a little basic to slip under the radar. Who burns with an entirely unbasic fire. She's a super smart cookie. Independent, powerful thinker, eager to battle authority huge desire in a deceptively sweet and unassuming package. The kind of woman a certain kind of man finds terrifyingly confusing. She tells me stories of body shaming from her foster mother's boyfriend, and the ways in which she protects herself against it, but feels angry she can't protect her sisters or her friends. I feel hunger all the time. And at Z's age, I managed it by denying it. Z manages the fire inside her, by refusing to commit to her hunger. If I ask if I can make her something, there's a bunch of indeterminate sounds, some hair swinging, and rapid eye movement, projecting a sort of confused dislocation from her own appetite. At first, I want to honor her choices and put food out for her, allow her space to approach on her own terms. But as that goes uneaten, I start to worry that I'm ceding my own responsibility. So... I start hanging out in the door of Z's room, draw her into conversation, then slowly draw the conversation into the kitchen. For all of her self-sufficiency, she loves conversation, and she follows me. And then I sneak attack. Super pasta. When she makes a choice, soup, we dive right back into the conversation, and it's the same thrill of directing an actor in a role who's given a fully committed, brilliant performance because they believe they did it all on their own, that all those bold, congruent, passionate choices were their sole discovery. Eventually, her bowl is finished. But before it is, I experience an odd hunger myself. A hunger to eat with her. It's not a social or familiar pressure. I've got nothing to prove. I've reached my nutritional needs for the day. And yet, this is a hunger as real as any other. I feel connected to her, and connected to her own hunger for both nourishment and the world. Kids need structure, and traumatized young people grappling with instability and impermanence and loss of control need both structure and autonomy. I think about the choices my parents gave me, the choices I give my students and my colleagues, all of us containing coet appetites. Our emotions take up the room in our bodies, in the world. My own parents must have talked in tense tones for hours, debating whether to let me eat whenever or demand participation in family meals, whether to bargain or demand, 
Whether to conflate calories and family connection time, or separate them the way I would always separate my food as a child. Casseroles distilled into essential ingredients. Peas over there, chicken over there, noodles over there. Later to become protein over there, carbs over there, fat over there. Each macronutrient accounted for. Did my parents physically experience the violent, contradictory hungers in my young adult body as I restricted meals and crept into the kitchen late at night to feed myself out of sight? My desire to remove myself from the casserole of my family changed the taste of what it meant to be a family. I am late to the joys of feeding a child a meal. Refueling and nourishing ourselves is crucial, but sometimes our own needs are unclear. Trust in our bodies can be broken. Signals can be indistinct or cacophonous, unreliable, crackling like static on the electrical pathways of our stressed-out brains. I find that helping others in these moments offers healing. Attending to someone else's needs calms my own needs down. I'm still scared of meals, but I work on continually reframing meals as a tool, not the goal. The goal is nourishment. Nourishment is a place where I feel confident, where I can use my experience as an artist and an educator and share my pure and immediate joy in the science and imagination of cooking. To create something that previously didn't exist. I recognize the myriad ways trauma, anxiety, betrayal, distrust, and loss can show up in the body. I know 100 ways to cook chicken. I know infinitely more ways to cook up compassionate curiosity. We're having chicken and broccoli. There's pasta if you want it. Come tell me about your day. Tracy Johnston Crum reading Shauna Beestock's Feed Foster Respite. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com.
are crap jobs and there are crap jobs. My first job was slinging pizzas at a family pizza joint. The pay was low, the hours were pretty long, but it gave me a start. I was a grunt worker at a print shop when I was 17. I fixed printer errors on finished products, dotting and smearing magic markers to smudge out the mistakes. It was insanely boring work and minimum wage pay. But no matter how you made your first paycheck as a kid, author Ellen Levitt has one that's even more brutal than most of us. Here's Ayanna Dusenberry reading her story, Sandwalkers. It's a hot summer day, so you go to the beach for sun and surf. You might be lazing around, soaking up rays, or romping in the water, but other people are working hard at the beach. It's not just the lifeguards who are on duty, nor the parks department workers who maintain the comfort stations. There are folks who walk along the sand, selling drinks and snack foods. They have a heck of a physically demanding job. Two summers ago, my family and I visited Jacob Reese Beach in southern Queens on a weekend afternoon. An enterprising guy walked around with a heavy bag calling out, Nutcrackers! Nutcrackers! I wasn't sure what he was selling, but then people on a nearby blanket called him over. I watched as he furtively showed them plastic pouches and explained what types of mixed alcoholic drinks he was selling. I assumed this was probably not legal. It's not. I watched him make a few sales to our beach neighbors and then walked onward. Maybe you've seen these workers, almost all male and mostly young, who stroll along the sand selling water and soft drinks, pretzels, ice cream, knishes, and other munchies. I remembered a junior high school classmate, Rich, who did this when we were younger and wondered more about what this kind of hard gig entailed. So I went in search of answers. I reached out to Rich from junior high, as well as my high school classmate Larry, and a few other people on a Facebook page devoted to reminiscing about Brooklyn, New York. Their thoughts about laboring as sandwalkers is intriguing and humbling. It's a solidly summertime job. I noted quickly that some of the guys had fond memories of this work, but let's start with the naysayers. Angelo said, I sold ice cream on the beach for one day and that was enough for me. Mike concurred. I did this for one week on Brighton Beach. Brutal, exhausting, minimal earnings that our distributor pocketed. It was physically draining and demanding on your vocal cords. You got sunburned and muscle toned. You could make a lot of cash, but took a risk each day. And it involved more street smart marketing and persuasive selling than you might think. Yet sandwalking was an entry level job one that required brute strength and stamina, but not a diploma. That was a great part of its appeal. Let's follow Rich as he discusses this job. I was a sandwalker, the unofficial term for those of us who braved the hot sands of Manhattan Beach, selling Pepsi products, sunduke orange drinks, hot gabillas, deep fried knishes, good humor fudgesicles, or fudgy wudgy, and Marino's Italian ices, cherry or lemon. I worked the summers of 1980 through 1985, ages 16 through 21. The pay was awesome overall. We hustled and earned sometimes over 200 a day, usually less, all cash. The money was it, plus a set of cohorts that became lifelong friends. The work was grueling some days and we definitely took slack from the patrons sometimes as we in their minds were servants, but all worth it. Also the soundtrack, 
Brooklyn in the 80s, Madonna, MJ, all of it. There was also the Timmy Burger, a split knish with usually one, sometimes two burger patties. Traditionally, a squirt of Heinz ketchup on one side and yellow mustard on the other. Still dream of it. Sandwalking gave me a work ethic that I carry with me today. It's interesting that Rich remembers specifically which products he sold and named them. Consumers and food service workers often think specifically about trade names, not just knish or soda or ice cream. Rich remembered the beach's social milieu, including the music that was popular and blasting from people's radios. Larry was a friend in high school who also worked this job. Every summer from 1981 to 1985, I worked as a sandwalker at Manhattan Beach from when I was 17 to 21. It was the best summer job of my youth. I learned about the job from a friend who had just started there. First, I had to go to the New York City Parks Department and apply for a license to work in a city park. I had to fill out a simple form, pay a small fee, and then I was set. My interview with Tony, the manager of the food concession at the beach, was simple. He gave me the lowdown, explaining that I needed to bring bags or a box to carry food items, which I would receive at my discretion and my risk from the food concession backyard, and that I would be liable to pay 75% of the menu price, which meant that I could earn 25%. It was sell it or eat it, no returns allowed. Usually we marked things up about 25% over the concession price, which gave us more room to earn profit. We would all fill up our bags from the concession stand and carry them out on the beach and start walking. As we sold out of various items, we would return to the concession stand, refill, and then get back out on the beach to sell. I usually got started around 10 and worked until 3.30. On the weekends, if the weather was nice, the beach would be crowded and there would be plenty of hungry, thirsty people and plenty of money to be made by all the sand walkers. On the weekdays, we had to hustle more. Speed was essential. My time was spent hauling food items and engaging in conversations like the following. Cold soda, hot knishes, orange drinks, ice cream. Sonny, do you have any Diet Fanta? Sorry, I've got Coke, Diet Coke, and ginger ale. How about a knish or an ice cream? It was hard work carrying 40, 50 pounds of food items and walking up and down the beach a lot while shouting out loud. If you wanted to move food items, you had to think about the weather. Hot sunny days made people thirsty. On cloudy, cooler days, people wanted to eat more. Timing was important, too. Drinks sell early, and then around lunchtime, people want to eat. Ice cream sales pick up later in the day. Anticipating customer needs was key. The job gave me a wealth of knowledge about customer preferences, matching supply to demand, cross-selling, and upselling. The job gave me a wealth of knowledge about customer preferences, matching supply to demand, cross-selling, and upselling. The job gave me a fantastic workout. I was a pretty skinny kid when I got started, but by the end of the summer, I had great muscle definition. The money was great. My average take-home each day was $100, and that was cash. On an average summer, I would earn and save around $4,000. That was a game-changer for me and opened up a new route to financial independence. There were days when only a couple of other guys showed up to work and the temperature went past 100. 
I'd double the price on those days. Two dollars for a Coke? Yesterday you sold it to me for a buck. You should have bought two yesterday and saved one for today. The concession stand is a 10-minute walk across the hot sand, and then you have to line up for 15 minutes. You want it or you don't want it. I got in great shape, made good money, and some good friends. And I got a great tan, which in those days was desirable. And I met girls, too. Rich and Larry both look back fondly on this work, which they chose to do for a few summers. They focus primarily on the money to be made, the labor, the risk, and interplay with the customers. There's a sense of machismo at play, bragging rights about being tough enough and savvy enough. Going back two decades more, I talked with Calman S., who worked as a sandwalker at Brighton Beach during two summers, 1966 and 1967. It was the first job offer I got. The job was hard, but more than that, I remember the two buses I had to take to get there. Buses were not air-conditioned then. Having to stand on the bus, going home after walking in hot sand, carrying two heavy boxes on my shoulders, did not make me happy. I looked up on my social security account how much money I made. My total pay for the summer jobs was 1966, $104, and for 1967, 114 We were paid a commission based on sales, not hourly. Among the ice cream snacks I sold were vanilla, chocolate eclair, toasted almond, and strawberry shortcake. They each cost 15 cents. And on particularly hard, hot, long days, my friend and I would walk down to Coney Island and take a ride on the cyclone, the legendary wooden roller coaster, to get ourselves boosted up for the trip home. Camaraderie is key in this kind of job. Just as Rich and Larry had made friends with other sand walkers, Kalman made a buddy too. I was very surprised by the different amounts of money made by a Brooklyn sandwalker in the mid-1960s and a sandwalker in the early mid-1980s. Kalman made over a month what Rich and Larry might make in a day. The work done by a sandwalker was not sophisticated and didn't have the cachet of working as a lifeguard. But most beach jobs aren't glamorous. The Sandwalker gig was a good fit for a teen who was just starting out in the work world. They probably should have earned more money, and their labor was typically more demanding for the effort they invested. But it's a step on the ladder of work. I worked two summers as a day camp counselor plus babysitting, and for most working teens like me, it was simply a start. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson over a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving their signature fresh foods farmed by our neighbors. Didn't hallucinate, it wasn't strange. Inside the lines I drew, been staying in my lane Wasn't a sign to me, I'm not to blame Brown bottles of Jameson, grey ashes in a tray I put out, got cancer sick 
out on the plain Visited the Vatican to watch the pontiff wave And he said, Benedicite, Benedicite, Benedicite On a long, hot Sunday Gotta get out of here, I can't remain from alcohol and age Down in the weeds again Tough to explain Mattress soaked in gasoline Makes iridescent flames I lay down I'll ask my love What will she say? What's it like to live with me here Every f***ing day But she stays
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Sam Evian, Alice Phoebe Liu, The Green Child, Bright Eyes, Radiohead, Wojciech Golchuski, Pan American, Tim Hecker, Philip Glass, Jersey Dudu Matuzowicz, Mondial Tubagan, and Ouroboros Boys. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.